Good Gabs, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. Hi, it's Steve McBride here, and today we have Tom MacArthur, longtime historian and journalist here in Spokane. Thanks for being with us, Tom. My pleasure, Steve. Nice to be with you. Heck yeah, we're down here at the you know new facilities down here at the Spokane Library downtown. It's a great spot. It's nice to have a, a place to call home. Yeah, it's one of the incredible library systems, you know, least in our state, maybe probably around the country as well. Yeah, and yeah. I think Spokane... Um, when, when I moved here um, back in the 1980s, uh, the, the, the thought was that Spokane is a nice place to be from. Okay. And I have seen it grow out of that feeling and out of that reputation to really to be the destination in the Northwest. You follow economic statistics, housing statistics, people are moving here because they want to be here. Right. And that's pretty cool. Well, tell us about your journey. You said in the 80s you came here. Where from? <laughs> the decade of big hair music, well. right. Um, I was born and raised in West Seattle and grew up partly in Bergen, Norway. Uh, that's my mom's side of the family. So we spent some years going uh, through school, uh, my brother and I, learning the language. So if you need, how to, uh, need to know how to say anything other than ufta, I can, uh, I can give you a lesson in Norwegian. Um, and then uh, attended Pacific Lutheran University uh, in the early 1980s, graduated in 1983. My first job ex post university uh, was at a small TV station in Nebraska. Okay. Where I did everything, including set the traps for the rattlesnakes. <laughs> uh, and when the um, tornado warnings came through, we were instructed to push the TV camera into the safe of the bank vault. We were in an old bank building downtown and continue broadcasting live on the air, reading uh, wire service dispatches saying where the tornadoes were moving, because this was before you know motion maps and all right. the technology we take for granted today. So we had the TV camera in the safe, which we thought was going to be the last room standing if it ever hit that building. Protect that equipment. Protect that equipment and, and keep the message going out. These were farmers and ranchers and people in the area that needed to know what was going on if that tornado was getting near them. And in as real time as we could make it from the wire machines, we were telling them where the tornadoes were moving. Nothing ever hit the building when I was there, and nothing has since. Um, but uh, that Did you was... ever see a tornado? No. I have never well, seen one in person. Me either. I'm knocking, uh, <laughs> knocking strongly on your desk here. Never seen them. Lots of video, of course, but never seen one in person, and I'd like to keep it that <laughs> way. Yeah, part of me, I just kind of want to see what one looks like. I don't think I want to experience that, though. No. Well, Nebraska is yeah. the state. If you want to go see tornadoes, that's where they uh, that's where they come through. Well, so then from Nebraska, how did you you know make it back to Spokane here, or make it to Spokane? Yeah, I I, uh, I sent out audition tapes shortly after I was in Nebraska because that gave me the body of uh, content that I could share, and the news director at Krem uh, liked what she saw. Um, flew me up for the week and met a bunch of people. And on the drive back out to the airport, she says, um, the job is yours. All right. And if you tell me no, I'm going to change your mind. They really wanted you. Yeah, which was nice. Yeah. It was part of the King Broadcasting Company, uh, which then had stations in Seattle and Portland and Boise. And we would work as our own little regional network and share stories back and forth back when we had to fly video cassettes. Uh, as opposed to a satellite uplink. It was really a fun time to be in the business. 
uh, lots of good people. Uh, technology that at the time was pretty cutting edge. Um, we were the first station in the market to go with videotape. Uh, and I had interned in Seattle when film was being phased out and okay. videotape was beginning. And to know that the vocabulary we used, you know, A-roll, B-roll, that was from the film days. And it's still used today, even though there aren't strips of film hanging up in the newsroom anymore. Uh, worked with some good people. I think the best piece of advice that I ever got from a grizzled chain-smoking producer <laughs> on the desk was, sometimes the hardest thing to write is nothing. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He says, sometimes you just need to shut up. Let the story tell itself. And when you're paid for telling words, paid for writing stories, that's kind of hard because you figure, I got to write something. And he says, no, there are times when you just need to step back and let the wind blow, let the baby cry, let whatever it is say what it wants to say. That's also journalism. Powerful. And that has stuck with me for all these years. Well, shoot, I might have to adopt that for this podcast. Yeah. The hardest thing to write is nothing. Um, sometimes you just need to listen. Well, so from, you know, your days in, in media, you know, what was next in your journey? After Krem, I worked for a while at KXOY, and after KXOY, I started doing contract programs for KSPS, PBS, Public Television. Um, I had done the daily news business for a while at that point, and I thought, you know, I like to spend time talking to people, meeting people, telling the story, putting pieces together in a more of a long-form documentary program. And so we did um, about a half a dozen different historical documentaries for KSPS. We went to Calgary and Edmonton up in Canada, which is part of the KSPS viewing area, which is kind of difficult to get your head around, but on cable and satellite, we cover all the way up to the Northern Territories of, of Canada. Um, and a high point to mention from, from that experience, when we did the um, Calgary Remembered documentary up in Calgary, Alberta, uh, it was premiered at the U.S. consulate in Calgary, Wow. With lots of, you know, red carpet arrival and all of that. It was a really cool experience. And that was the first time we really thought, hmm, all these notes and scripts and photographs and scans and raw materials for making this documentary, it, it would be a shame to just put that in a box and leave it on the shelf at KSPS. So we gave all of that to the Calgary City Archives. And I understand from friends who are still up there that every year they have a celebration of Calgary history, and one of the things they do is play our documentary. That is fantastic. It's really cool. Yes. And you must, yeah, really captured the essence. It was, we, we talked to a lot of people at a time when they were at the um, perigee of their careers, you know, when they were just about to put their feet up and retire. Uh, so they were still with it to know what they did uh, and want to talk about it before they retired and lost interest in the business and the hu hustle and bustle of daily life. Um, when they got the Olympics up there, when they got um, the, uh, um, what's the, 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 the hockey cup, the trophy? Uh, Stanley Cup. Stanley Cup. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, those kinds of stories. Uh, when, when you could get on the streetcar with a long coat and have a couple of bottles in your pocket and... <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of thing. Uh, we interviewed uh, up in Canada uh, a, a historian who is now deceased, Alec Mayer, who 
taught me two things about history. Um, he says, you, he and I were talking, and I said, you know, I, I really didn't care for history in high school. It wasn't my story. It wasn't my time. I didn't care. And now I'm, I have a business card from the Davenport Hotel that says historian. <laughs> so how did that change? Well, he says, Tom, you're, you're thinking about history all wrong. Um, history is not about what was. It's about what is. Tell us more about that. So the corollary to that, um, that that Alec offered, and then I'll come back to answering your question. He says, you go down a hallway in a building with all kinds of black and white photographs of people, like the Davenport Hotel. And and you see all of these pictures of what used to be. And the thought is, well, these are all people who died. And he says, no, these are people who lived. Yeah. So if you think of them in color in present tense, as living individuals, then it becomes your immediate experience. So it is your story, uh, and it is your time, and it is your place, uh, and that has helped me have a richer appreciation in the rearview mirror. When, uh, when Alec, as a historian, says, you know, that history is about what is, the Davenport Hostel, Hotel is, and... When we were thinking about telling some of the ghost stories of the building, uh, Walt and Karen Worthy, the owners at the time, uh, were saying, oh, no, 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 we're not going to talk about people who died here. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I can understand that from an owner's (laughs) perspective. You're going to scare all the guests away. We're not going to do that. Uh, Until us telling one particular ghost story got us on the Today Show twice. So then Walt yeah, comes to me. Yeah, this makes sense now. <laughs> now Walt comes to me and he says, okay, okay, you got any more ghost stories? <laughs> uh, because we told the story of Ellen McNamara not as someone who died at the Davenport, but as someone who lived at the Davenport, as a guest, as you and I are guests of that building today. And even though she had a, a, a rather unconventional checkout, <laughs> it was a way for us to honor a past guest. And in the, in the years that I was there, uh, on the anniversary of her passing, we would put a red rose of remembrance on the hearth at the fireplace in the lobby. And oftentimes people would ask, why is that rose there? Sure. And, and it would start a conversation. We could tell them why. We could tell them who. We could say she is a guest here, present tense, because there are people who say that she is still here. Uh, Now, I don't know if she is or isn't. That's beside the point. But the fact that a guest who was at the Davenport experienced the same hospitality you and I do today, I mean, it's physically the same space for more than 100 years, uh, that we honored one of our guests just because she was a guest. That's some service. I think so. uh, And it lasts. Um, There aren't a lot of things in life that last anymore, but the Davenport, thankfully, in our community does. Uh, and the stories of the people that came and went there does. Um, as, as an interesting piece to look about how things are the way they are, uh, you've probably heard that uh, Louis Davenport washed the money at the Davenport Hotel back in the early I have days. not you've heard not? this. Okay, then let me tell you more. Yeah. Um, the, the story is true, that Louis, Louis Davenport collected all the silver dollars at the time, uh, which were in common uh, exchange, had them go down to housekeeping in the basement where they were washed and tumbled with the house silver service and issued as new the next day. 
Now, why would you wash the money? You know, well, I'm all to, ears. to launder the money. It wasn't for any <laughs> nefarious reason. Um, there's a theory, and I subscribe to it, originally postulated by Tony Bamonte, the late Tony Bamonte, who was a great historian here in Spokane. And he says, if you understand people's childhood, sometimes you understand them. And this is how he explains why Louis Davenport was obsessed about cleanliness in his operation. And that is that Louis Davenport's father fought in the American Civil War on the Union side, was taken a prisoner of war by the Confederates, and held as a prisoner of war at Andersonville. Oh, we know that story. And if you know that story, it was, it's not overstating it to call it hell on earth. Uh, vermin and disease and sickness and no food and on and on and on. So from that world of squalor, uh, Louis Davenport's uh, father goes home after the war, and Louis is born, into a house where his dad is obsessed about cleanliness for the rest of his life, boiling and steaming and scrubbing and cleaning obsessively because of his experience at Andersonville. So Louis grows up in this world where cleanliness is the norm. It serves him well as a restaurateur in sure. Spokane and then later as a hotelier in Spokane. And it was just one of those quirky little things that he did from his childhood and from his growing up that became noteworthy in the business of hospitality. Because think of the people who touch silver dollars in the course of a day or a week or a month. Uh, and Louis wanted to make sure that when you got a silver dollar, it was shiny new. And the paper bills were pressed through housekeeping, so it was a crisp bill when you got it. But think of that from the receiver's point of view, to get a fresh silver dollar and a fresh dollar bill, the respect that that gave the guest. Absolutely. It was a little you, thing. You feel good. You feel good, yeah. right. That fresh and new honored you as a guest. Those idiosyncrasies of a person, but that translates into those little things that make people feel so good. That That's yeah. a great story. Little things mean a lot, like the song uh, sings, uh, I forget the woman who made it famous back in the 1950s, but yeah, little things mean a lot. Not only washing the silver dollars, pressing the, the, uh, the paper money, but um, Louis Davenport had a tradition of having a fireplace burning 24 hours a day. That's my kind of man. I love a fire. In, in all four seasons. Um, not because we needed the heat in, you know, in, in a Spokane summer, but we needed the abiding symbol of hospitality. The hearth is kind of the heart of the home. And he, he never really called it his hotel. He called it his house, his home. And he wanted Spokane to feel at home in Spokane's living room, which is what it is still nicknamed today. Uh, and you go there today, the fireplace is burning. It's been converted to gas, so that makes it easier to, uh, to maintain. But it still burns. From his original order, a hundred and what is it now? Hundred and four years ago. Incredible. Well, setting the tone of that, you know, what customer service, what hospitality can, you know, look like. What what can you know businesses today, you know, take from this? Well, I, I'm glad you asked because I brought a few notes on the topic of of Mr. Davenport's hospitality, knowing that we I'm going to take this off if you don't mind these uh, headphones. Of course. So I can uh, wear my glasses confess that I need them. Uh, <laughs> so um, Louis Davenport opens the hotel in 1914, 
And in 1919, uh, he writes kind of a philosophy paper about his philosophy of hospitality. So here is System Magazine, 1919. It pays us to give a little more. Us meaning his peers across the business community. It all, all of us should be looking to give a little more. Uh, and under this title, Louis Davenport writes, Give the customer just what he pays for, skimp a little, or give him a little more than he may expect. Of these three policies, always choose the last, and that is give a little more. And then he tells here in the article why it pays him. So why it pays him? If you're giving something, how can that pay you? Tell us more. Uh, that, that's where all of this comes into play. You can plan to make your mechanical equipment practically foolproof, writes Mr. Davenport, but it is very much harder to train employees always to express the house policy. Yet, in the last analysis, it is through employees that the house policy must be principally expressed. So your employees, as your frontline people, express the soul of the business. And this is the best quote I think I've ever read about hospitality. A surly look or discourteous word is more than enough to banish in a second all memory a guest may have of a comfortable bed or an exceptional meal. Sure can. I know I've experienced that. Yeah. All that many of our listeners little... have, too. Yep, yep. I was sharing before <laughs> we started recording today, uh, Steve, as, as you know, uh, that I was at a, a Ziggy's Hardware Store in the Valley yesterday. And behind the guest, not for the customer to see, but for the employees to see, was a little sign that said, do not point. You know, to, to point and say, oh, well, that's over there. Rather, walk them to what they're looking for. Be a, a, a guide in discovery of where this item might be. And so the sign behind the desk at Ziggy's Hardware Store, I'll give them credit for having this, uh, was do not point. Following Louis Davenport's script, maybe they have never heard of it, but they're certainly following the same idea. And powerful, right? That you're really, really delivering right. service. And then as a guest or a customer, you feel you have an advocate that can lead you, um, explain to you, uh, assist you, whatever word you might want to use in that conversation. And the next time you go back, you're going to look for Fred. Or the next time you go back, you're going to look for Jane because they helped you good the last time. I remember, you know, when I first started some home projects, that was Miller's Hardware on the South Hill. There you me. go, right. Like, I wasn't going to go to Home Depot because I knew I could go to Miller's. I'd spend a little more, but they were going to walk me right to where I needed to be and really deliver that service that I needed. And you go back. Absolutely. Yeah, because they know their stuff. Yep. Um, one more quote that I'll share here from, from Mr. Davenport. Doing a little more than is expected, I think, and I being Louis Davenport, perhaps the true distinction between a business that makes good on service and a business that fails to make good on it. The house that leans backward in this respect is constantly putting itself in danger of rubbing some customer the wrong way. Again, if you make it a rule to do only what you feel is expected of you, you do not distinguish yourself from the crowd. You could be giving this lecture in a hospitality school today. And should be, probably. And, and I've, I've given this um, PowerPoint presentation uh, at the hospitality school down at WSU um, to understand one of the original roots of hospitality, probably at its most practiced uh, height, back when 
Telephones were brand new. Electricity was brand new. Air conditioning was brand new. Uh, housekeeping carts were brand new. Uh, uh, accordion walls between ballrooms were brand new. And all of those had the first incarnation here at the Davenport Hotel in Spokane. Davenport was world famous and famous within his profession for being an innovator. And sometimes we think, oh, he was trying to you know, push the envelope of scientific research and hospitality. Honestly, and I would tell this to Mr. Davenport to his face, he was just frugal. Uh, he was <laughs> thrifty. Right. He was thrifty to the core. Um, but all good in that because um, he would do, for example, uh, he would tell the staff never to walk down the center of the hallway, always walk down the sides, defer, uh, to, defer to the guests so they could walk down the center of the he hallway. He wanted even wear on that carpet. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. <laughs> yes, he was thrifty. And a, a, a funny aside to that, one day the phone rings at my desk at the Davenport, and it's a woman with a very heavy Russian accent. And I can, I can understand what she's after, and she says that she'd like to come and do a story about the Davenport Hotel. Oh, really? What causes your interest? And uh, then she hands the phone over to somebody from the United States State Department, who continues in English, to explain that they were trying to find ways for Russian media to look at American business and find out what our secrets were. There are no secrets. You know, this was published in Hotel Monthly back in the 1900s. So I said, sure, we'll talk about anything. Come on down. So here she shows up, she herself, a production assistant and a photographer, and they were interested in our historically green program, which means, you know, we'll put liquid soap out, we'll not wash the towels unless you want us to, and all these kinds of things for your service. Sure. We just wanted to be thrifty. You know, we don't have to pay for a towel that we don't have to wash. Okay? But that's your choice as a guest. So the power service. is still in your hands. Service is in your hands. But she wanted to find out how does doing all of this pay? Because her philosophy that she was going to take back to Russia was, you know, people aren't going to be motivated if it doesn't pay. It's got to have some value in it for us. Otherwise, you know, just be nice to be nice. You want to be thrifty with a reason. So we explained that... Uh, a room you don't have to clean, a towel you don't have to wash, soap you don't have to replace. Most of it goes into the garbage if it's a bar soap. Absolutely. Uh, how do you put that into a system of practices that leave the guest in charge, but don't do service that isn't necessary? And it saves you money, it respects the guests, and it means that you can be historically thrifty, historically green. Yeah. Earth-friendly. I say, and help the Earth at the same time. A healthy time. Earth, right. So rather than say we're taking things away from you, no, we're giving empowerment to you as a guest. You get to decide how green you want to be during your stay, and we'll make that happen. I love it. And she took that back to Russia. Where Spokane, just, yeah, spreading, uh, you know, good business practices, customer service all over the world. Right. Well, my, my own great-grandfather had a drugstore here in town, MacArthur Drug. Um, on the corner of uh, uh, Monroe and Sprague, where the Fox Theater stands today. Okay. And uh, we have his notes and his formularies. And oftentimes he would uh, notate things in his remarks to himself. PHQ. And we thought that was a technical term, you know, in the pharmacy business. Is this some medical sure. thing you need to know? PHQ? No. When he had done something good, he wanted to acknowledge his own goodness, and he wrote PHQ, PHQ 
pretty high quality. Nice. <laughs> How'd you guys figure this out? Right. Yeah. And, and it's just, yeah. you know, sometimes you don't hear a lot of comments about doing something well, but he was going to note to his own satisfaction that he had done something good for a customer or a guest, mm-hmm. and even though they might not know or say that they appreciated the extra effort, he knew that he had given a little more. So this passion for customer service, I mean, you're talking about your great-grandpa. You can tell this, this drives you. You're a connector of people. You, you want to, you know, move the needle. Shoot, this podcast wouldn't exist unless uh, you were sitting with Dana Devine and myself having a coffee talking about, you know, what could be. I've invented a phrase, the currency of kindness. Um, and that means that we all have a printing press of kindness. We can print as many bills as we want and spend as freely as we want of kindness. So it has immeasurable worth, but it doesn't cost us anything to make. Right. Just be nice, be kind. Uh, I see it in, in my great-grandfather, PHQ. You know, he knew his stuff. Uh, I see it in Louis Davenport, and these are the things that make Spokane stand out from other cities across the country or around the world, is giving a little more, being a little nicer. Um, If we could just think about that in every transaction, how do we do more than anybody else? Give a little bit more. I think that may, as you say, could be just a mantra of Spokane because some of the the pillars of business – you know, and I worked for some of them, you know, like the Huppins family. Mm-hmm. It's my first job. You know, they taught me customer service from the beginning. Um, Eggers Better Meats up on the South Hill. Like, they really took me to another level when, it, you know, you were delivering service. And we were just, you know, selling meat. But it wasn't that. We were, you know, it was part of an experience. And we did it. <laughs> and uh, that just has stuck with me my whole life. I was in the hotel business, too. And uh, selfishly, I did like to just give a little more because it made me feel good. You know, someone was having a bad day. They were long day of travel, whatever might have been happening. If I could just turn that frown upside down Mm -hmm. in that moment, um, I felt good. And I wanted, you know, everyone was just having a better day. It was good. I liked it. Yep. Um, There was a housekeeper who would take the bus uh, to work every day. Uh, wearing a suit and tie. He would walk in the front door as a guest, dressed like he owned the place. And one day I complimented him on his appearance before he went down into the lockers to change into his housekeeping uniform. And he says, uh, yeah, it just helps me to get into the right mindset. Whatever I do, I want to do it well. Because he had been a refugee from Africa in one of the countries that had really had a horrible experience in his childhood. So here he was in the United States given the keys to, you know, one of America's exceptional hotels and to be a piece of operating that. And one day as he was going home, he had changed out of his housekeeping uniform and was standing by the lobby fountain in his suit and tie, again, looking like he owned the place. So we started a conversation, and he says, you know, whether or not this building, but someday I will own the place, and this is practice. Yeah. So I don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he's doing well. Uh, I think he would be doing well with the right attitude uh, and the idea that you can print kindness and spend it as much as you can. Love that story, Tom. Yeah. Well, tell us more about, you know, this idea. I think 
we look at our community, right? And the, a lot of business happening here. Um, is there intersectionality between, you know, business and customer service and your community? My job currently is with the Spokane Association of Realtors. And um, that profession has seen a lot of change in the last couple of decades as uh, house hunting has moved online. I think it's 98% now of all people looking for a house begin their search online. I'm one of them. Yep. Huh. It's convenience. You want to see what's out there on your own time, sometimes in the evening, sometimes early in the morning, or a lunch break or something. You can check and see what properties are available. Um, so it's it's given amazing power to the to the buyer. But then you also look at the percentage of the number of people who work a transaction with a human being, with a realtor, with a broker. And that percentage is still pretty high, right around 80%. So if we have the technology, why do we still want to deal with someone? Because that's we're who humans. we are. <laughs> right. That's who we are. Uh, and and you talk to any any broker who's been around the business for a lot of, uh, of years, and they'll tell you that it's the human relationship, the human conversation that people really treasure. Now, it's related to the largest purchase you'll ever make in your life, and sometimes you just feel comfort in having somebody in that yeah, conversation with assurance. you. Right. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right way? Uh, and so far, they haven't come up with an algorithm that does that. And I don't think they ever will. Um, we are analog beings. And I think to relate to an analog being is where we find relationship. Uh, I've never felt I had a relationship with a phone or a computer or, you know, any of those things. But a lot of people, yeah. Well, so I, I hear you there. And I love that uh, analogy. We are analog beings. We have to be present. That is the connection. We're seeing business change, though, in front of us right now, you know, from the way you order things to even interacting in a restaurant where you're just, you know, on a pad, you know, putting in your order. And it feels like there's something being lost here. And like, at least from my perspective, I'm perceiving it as, you know, maybe even bad customer service when someone just they haven't taken the time to, you know, maybe greet me or really understand what's happening. And all of a sudden, I'm just there's no connection. Yeah. And, and a lot of technology today, frankly, I find creepy. Uh, as I was waiting to have this conversation with you today, I was planning a, a meeting of the Spokane Valley Heritage Museum Board of Directors. I serve on that fine organization, and we were talking about having our next meeting over dinner, the first post-COVID um, board meeting with all of us present over dinner. And I said, I'll bring... Frankly, I said, I'll, I'll bring a Costco pie. Uh-huh. Not 30 seconds later, that picture was on my Facebook feed. Costco pie. Here's where you get it. Uh, now, if I were a <laughs> vendor, I would appreciate that that was a necessary real-time market opportunity for Absolutely. me. And here's the product. So I can see where technology can facilitate uh, the availability of something that we're looking for or talking about. That's nice. Um, but... Ultimately, I'm going to deliberately look for a place at Costco to buy that through a human being. And, and again, there's the self-serve line, and that's fine for those who, who choose to use it. I'm, Can I'm, you? Because I can't. I cannot go through that line unless I have like one item. I want to have that interaction. I do. I, I, 
Here, okay, so here's a good story about always finding the human being at the grocery store. Uh, years ago, I um, went to a certain store in Spokane Valley, uh, and I always looked for the same checker. Because yeah, we're in you know, a relationship. We pick up where we left off. Oh, yes. how's your how's your kid? What did your daughter do this week? And all that kind of thing. So here we are, um, years later, uh, I'm looking to find somebody to tell the stories of how they grew up in Spokane and what was it like to have a Sunday meal with family. And I asked my checker. And she says, oh, I'd be happy to show you. She says, I even have pictures. And so we sat down and we talked. And uh, she's the founder of the Northwest Black Pioneers. So here we had a picture of a big family having Sunday meal, and we talked about, you know, taking the streetcar down with Grandma, and so she really had some experience back um, before my time. Uh, and after the documentary aired, oftentimes people will call and comment about, you know, the, the program that you just put on the sure. air. Um, Geraldine Williamson is her name, still very much alive, living in Spokane Valley, and she called me at the station one day. And I thought, okay, usually people call because there's a complaint. So, <laughs> What's going on? Oh, what's going on? Hi, Geraldine. How are you? And she's, I could tell that she had been thinking about what she was going to say to me. And I thought, okay, this, this isn't going to be good. But she says, I wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you for including the piece uh, about having a family uh, dinner on Sundays. She says, I know that you were aware that we had these photographs from the Northwest Black Pioneers. But you didn't say these were black people having Sunday dinner. It was people having Sunday dinner. And she says, that is a change of journalism for us because the photograph identifies us as black, and oftentimes the narrative does too. But if you call somebody in the picture somebody having a family dinner on Sunday, that's what the picture shows. Sure. So that's what I said it showed. And that was an eye-opening experience for me to have somebody say, you know, what do these pictures tell you? Well, they tell you some detail. They can even tell you what time it was when they took the picture, if there's a clock on the wall in the back. Um, but that isn't a black clock. It's just a clock. And so if a family has a Sunday meal, it's a family having a Sunday meal. That's really... All it is. Uh, and, and that was a, a, a moment that, that I appreciate, Geraldine, uh, and that started as a conversation at the grocery store, uh, to come and appreciate the fact that we have so much in common and to focus on that. Well, that's community building, right? That's mm -hmm. being in relationship with people. Uh, big things can happen and, and worlds can change. I, it sounds cliche, but I just I know it to be true. Yeah. Um, but you have to be open to it. Absolutely. I got to tell you a story, Tom. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> you got me on story time. Um, so there Do was tell. a neighborhood uh, grocery store uh, up off 17th and Ray, and it was called XL. And it was our neighborhood grocery store. And so just growing up as a kid, going there, I knew Patty. She was our checker. You know, I knew the meat market folks. Like, we, we were in relationship. Uh, one day, I stole a pack of gum. <gasps> was not a good day afterwards. My mom finds this. Um, she knew she didn't buy it. I ended up, you know, walking me back to XL. Here's Patty. You know, I'm just, I'm a little kid. I'm just tears running down my face. And, I'm sorry, Patty. And, but it changed me because, you know, I knew her and I knew them and I didn't steal anymore. <laughs> it was like, it just, it was one of those moments 
that changed me. And if it was just, you know, the Walmarts of the world and I didn't know anyone, I was self-checking out, maybe that lesson wouldn't happen to me. And, you know, that shaped me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I can just appreciate, yeah, us, that strong customer service, right? Yeah. There, there's a, a theory that isn't mine, and, and I don't know who to subscribe it to, because uh, that piece is not in my brain, but it was uh, that human beings um, don't have a bootstrap. By that, I'm borrowing a phrase from the computer world, where you turn your computer on and it has a boot sequence, a loaded program that makes it a computer. Okay. Humans don't have that. When we're born, you can't throw the switch and we already have a set of known things, a body of knowledge as we're born. A lot of animals have instincts because that's how they survive. Human beings don't. Everything in our bootstrap we learn in the first few years of our lives. So right and wrong, good and bad, pretty ugly, all of those basic functions that cause us to operate as a human being are in our bootstrap that we learn that we're not born with. So every transaction you have as a baby or young person programs who you're going to be for the rest of your life. And you can talk to any elementary school teacher. They say, yeah, about seven years old, you're pretty, <laughs> your bootstrap is pretty well set. It can be modified, of course, with mentors and behaviors and experiences as life goes on. Um, but how you start as a human being has a lot to say about how you behave for the rest of your life. Like Louis Davenport's dad, you know, he came through this experience of a horrible um, prisoner of war. And Louis was born into that, knowing that that's what you do is you keep everything really clean. It served him well for the rest of his life. Well, we've heard a lot um, on this podcast um, about early childhood experiences. And yeah, as you put it, you know, you're kind of set. Not to say there isn't hope. You know, there's always hope. I'm the eternal optimist. There's always hope. Um, And you just have to look for the right people in your life and realize who the bad people are in your life and that you really ought not to be, you know, rubbing up against that as an influence, but rubbing up against people who are going to lead you in a good place. Um, I was a program director for a scout camp years ago. To Which a, one? Uh, it was a uh, Chief Seattle Council Cub Scout day camp that moved around different city parks. Okay. I definitely was a part of that. Okay. If, maybe uh, you, you were, were a part of that camp? in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, over in the Seattle area. And our camp director was this grizzled old retired Washington <laughs> State Patrol officer. But he and I got along great. And I asked him, and I said, uh, you've seen me behave here as a camper, as a leader, as a staff person. Um, what's your best advice for me? And he says, hit your wagon to people who are going somewhere. Well, lots of people who don't go anywhere. And that's a choice. Sure. You can, you can stay with them. Um, but if you want to go places, try things, be with people, um, build things. Go somewhere, hit your wagon. Um, the other way to phrase that is, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. I love that phrase. Uh, yeah, I've heard that from my folks a few times too. But yeah, he, uh, Vern said, uh, yeah, hit your wagon with people who are going somewhere. Um, go somewhere. Yeah, take that step. Take that step. Uh, and for the rest of your life, go somewhere. Uh, reinvent yourself as necessary. 
you're doing this podcast as a new thing, a new experience for you. You know, this was not part of your, your childhood or growing up years. This is headphones, microphone, look at, you know, look at you. Um, so it's kind of scary. <laughs> hit, hit your wagon with ideas that are, are going to go and take you to a good place. And you're doing that with this. So thank you for that service to our community and uh, to the many good things you and Dana and your many colleagues at Skillskin are doing um, to let people realize that every person has value. Well, right back at you, Tom. Again, yeah, listeners, this wouldn't have happened without <laughs> this man. <laughs> it and, was a collaborative effort. Well, indeed. Well, yeah, Tom, thank you. My pleasure, Steve. <laughs> this is fun. 